0: Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. Violet Moller. This week we are travelling to Tudor England to witness the death of a thousand years of monastic culture. Between 1536 and 1540 over 850 monastic institutions were shut down by the Tudor regime, forcing thousands of monks, nuns and friars to find new ways of life and ending a tradition that had flourished for over a millennium. The dissolution of the monasteries was the most dramatic and widespread change to society since the arrival of William the Conqueror, and yet our view of the Tudor period today is overshadowed by Henry VIII's lurid personal life. Monasteries don't get a look-in, but at the time they were fundamental to society as centres of faith, employment, worship, welfare, economy, culture and education. In his new book, The Dissolution of the Monasteries, Professor James Clark sets out to tell the story from a new angle. James is Professor of History at the University of Exeter. He has published widely on medieval monasteries and their place in the medieval world. Professor James Clark, welcome to Travels Through Time.
1: Hello Violet, it's a great pleasure to be here.
0: I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. We're going to be talking about your magisterial new book and I don't use that word lightly, uh, which is the dissolution of the monasteries. I wanted to ask you, what drew you to this subject? Why did you want to write this book?
1: Quite simply, I felt that we were suffering in Britain almost a collective amnesia about this episode, which I've always been convinced is really the great drama of Henry VIII's Reformation. And it struck me as extremely odd that it had drifted or been allowed to drift to the margins of that narrative of that of that moment. And that almost we we displaced it with um, other personal dramas in the reign of Henry VIII. And yet the process that probably had the most immediate impact on the largest number of Henry VIII's subjects had not been written about recently by historians. And I, I wanted to to fill that space.
0: I think it's a bit of a strange thing at the moment with Henry VIII and, 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 and the Tudors. I mean, I, you hear a lot of people saying that, you know, history is so dominated by the Tudors. But it's not really. It's dominated by Henry VIII. I mean, there hasn't been that much written about Elizabeth or, or on the television or whatever, I don't think, recently. Um, and I w- wonder, why do you think that is, that Henry VIII and his kind of personal... It's really his his marital problems. Why do you think that has become so dominant?
1: Well, firstly, I think you're right that we've reduced the Tudor period to a, a melodrama or even, frankly, a soap opera, Um uh, the much married henry and and his um ups and downs um I think it's because of an excess of of what you might call subjectivity that we we um collectively in our interest in our own past we we reach out for points of contact points of recognition, and in the the personal dramas the what seems at times a kind of bipolarity in Henry's personality. This is a a man who is capricious, who um, seems to suffer mood swings more than most. There's a lot there to be uh, identified with. And I think that uh, that draws people in who perhaps wouldn't ordinarily be drawn to some of the the themes that uh, historians such as myself would would like them to to uh, connect with. But uh, there is so much more to the study of the past than looking for recognition, looking for ourselves. The past shouldn't be a mirror. It is the proverbial other country. And, and what has always drawn me to the remoter periods of our past has been the difference, not the similarity. And I think, uh, perhaps particularly in these times of ours... We need to rediscover the virtue of difference, of of unsimilarity, of unlikeness. And if we elbow aside Henry and his relationship troubles, we find a remarkable world that doesn't offer a lot of similarity to our own, but, but should be studied precisely because it doesn't.
0: What do you think it says about us as a society today that we are so obsessed with? Henry and his divorces?
1: I think it, it suggests um, that we, we want historical change to be reducible to a drama of personalities and, and their impulses. Perhaps in the age of social media, of personal timelines that map out our own daily experience, we we have fallen victim to the fallacy that that we we live in a in in a sort of me-centered universe as if as if we do have um complete and subjective uh control over over our own life course and it it's it's almost the polar opposite of what fascinated earlier generations with their past i think um take victorian uh Era people were then actually drawn to the grand themes of history. Um, we seem to have, have performed a, a complete about face, and, and and want to believe that our our past has been shaped by by um, individual personalities and their um, strengths, weaknesses, oddities, uh, and so on. I think there's also a sense in which general audiences are are perhaps reluctant or even fearful to hear the stories of the past told differently. I think there is something perhaps almost subconsciously comforting if we are told again that Henry was much married, that he grew very fat, that he was changeable, often tyrannical. This is a familiar story that many of us first meet probably in primary school. And as we go on through life and we have less time for discovering history and for for reading for pleasure and uh, and so on Um, perhaps what we want most of all is is the comfort of of the familiar Um, the the huge number of of versions of the story of this king and his marriages bears witness to the fact that that people's taste for for what they've already heard is 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 more more or less insatiable
0: and I know that in, in this book, you want to show another side of this story. So, you you know, the, the dissolution of the monasteries, especially in academic history, has been written about um, a lot, not recently. But can you explain a little bit about which stories you wanted to tell in particular in this book? I know that you say in your introduction that you want to trace the end of the monasteries from their own point of view. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, what I didn't want to do here was to uh tell this as as a high political drama as um, a, a an event or a process which which is um, managed from um, the the corridors of power. Uh, as it were, of of Henry and his chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, and of a a government, uh, as it were, on manoeuvres, but rather to look at it um, from the point of view of those it directly affected, not only those who were part and parcel of the more than 800 religious houses that existed in Tudor England, but also the, the many others who were affected um, more indirectly, because the dissolution of the monasteries causes ripples that run right across Tudor society, and um, a monastery was was more than a, a a church and a place of worship and a community of people who dedicated their lives to God. It was also, in many respects, a, a corporation. It it was an employer. It was a, a focus for economic activity. It was also a cultural institution, a place where people got their education. Uh, it was also a, a, an institution providing forms of social welfare so it has many facets, and almost every constituency in sixteenth century society is touched in some way through its its activities and I wanted to capture that because too often in in the traditional textbook. Accounts the dissolution is is treated almost as just a fait accompli it 's a, um, a series of statutes passed or a series of government actions that are undertaken and completed, and we move on um, and and yet society is is more profoundly affected by that the The imprint of these institutions, which had been in England for hundreds of years. He's not so easily erased. And um, the, uh, the effect of their closure and removal um, runs on long beyond uh, the, the span of Henry VIII's reign. And I, I wanted um, in some way to capture that. It's also a, a very diverse set of stories. It's not a single story because there are so many of these institutions, so widely distributed across the country, and... Uh each one is different. Each one is, is the product of its own immediate environment uh, and landscape. Each one has been moulded by the neighbourhoods that have grown up around it. Everybody would have had their own story of the effect of the dissolution of the monasteries to tell. We only have to, to walk through any provincial town in England and Wales today. And you, if you know what you're looking for, you will see a, a rather different, distinct local set of uh, stories that emerge from the removal of of the medieval religious houses that were there, and I wanted to in as best I could to try and evoke some of that 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 variety and again to to just pull a, against a little bit this this rather uniform and, and i suppose kind of homogenized notion of the the march of Tudor progress through the 16th century but rather to say this is this is a profound moment and and it's um, unfolding in in many many different ways across many different regions of of England and Wales
0: I think part of the problem is that we have this idea now of a monastery being somewhere which is separate from society somehow and uh, apart and as you've just explained that was just absolutely not the case in um, early sixteenth century England, or indeed I think anywhere um, on the continent either. That they were such an integral part of the culture, uh, the culture and fabric of life. I think that's something that you know for whatever reason has really been lost in the passage of time since. Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, medieval monasteries are a pure and perfect paradox in that their members. Decide to withdraw from the world, but they join an institution which is absolutely embedded in the world from which they have just decided to withdraw. And in many ways, they withdraw themselves as individuals from a worldly life, but in doing so, they commit themselves to a life which, in so many different ways, serves the world and And is in constant interaction with it, I think that's why, for me and for many other historians, they're such fascinating institutions because they are a point of contact between the two i suppose defining characteristics of medieval society on the one hand this this age of of faith and on the other this age of a of a Burgeoning society, a society in its its early stages of formation, where uh, it's taking shape in its urban setting, in uh, in the forms of of economy uh, and and production that that will later uh, shape the the early modern world, and we can see this as a kind of frontier. If we look at a monastery, it really is extraordinary to see the the juxtaposition between those who are at the centre of these communities who have um, committed themselves to leading a, a, a religious life, but who are almost, um, I think for us historians, they're almost guides to that, that very worldly life that surrounds them.
0: Well, and also there were so many of them, weren't there? I think David McCulloch said that you couldn't be anywhere in england in this period without being about half an hour walk
1: from no indeed i mean med- medieval monasteries are, are like a tesco metro they are um, yeah
0: yeah
1: <laughs> you you can be fairly confident um that you can get to one on on two feet i think in 16th century england uh, there are concentrations of them of course in places where there are the largest populations um, but even in the remoter parts, on um, uh, to the west of England and into Wales and in in into the north, um, they are to be found. And in fact, what what's quite fascinating about them in the more um, rural, less densely populated parts of sixteenth century England is that monasteries clearly are um, proxy towns, in effect, because they are they offer that um, focus for. Uh, employment, economic activity they they are they become a kind of cross current of human economic, and social traffic in a way that a town does in a more heavily populated area um, and 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 no it it 's fair to say that monasteries were not dearly loved uh institutions by everybody in sixteenth century England, but they were institutions that were on pretty much everybody's horizons. Um, It would be difficult uh, to to encounter anyone in 16th century England who who wasn't aware of these these places. You you may elect to have a closer relationship with one, but you would certainly be um, acutely aware of of their part in the history of your neighbourhood. Um, You'd be aware that probably the streets you walked down had once been mapped out by that very old institution. You'd be aware that uh, a lot of the um, rentable property in your neighbourhood, actually the landlord of it was the local religious house. Um, And you'd be aware that it was both a major employer and also a major market for um, traded goods. Uh, because it's, it's, it's a very large institution. So contrary to, to our own 21st century view of what a religious community by, might be, something very separated, quite exclusive, something that, that you'd only know about um, if you were a certain kind of person, uh, monasteries really are in the 16th century quite the opposite of that. Um, as I say, it, it, it isn't something that only a select few would have had some familiarity with. We're all familiar with the the very well-known ruined abbeys that are in the care of National Trust and, and English Heritage. But I think we're we're less familiar with the fact that quite a lot of other material remains are still there on our own high streets. Um, and we, we, we hurry past them on the way to the shops. Um, and I've, I've done my best in the book to... To bring those into the foreground as well, the fact that um if you live in Bodmin in Cornwall, um, you go past on the high street still the um the facade of the the friary was that was there it's it 's concealed behind a modern shopfront but it 's still there, and the the preaching cross of the dominican friars in in Hereford, which is still there to be seen um and that comes back to this this um uh, problem, perhaps, of of amnesia that we've um, we've re assimilated uh, monastic England into our uh, our own townscape, um, and and as a result, these edifices, these remains, have become a little bit um, anonymous, and, and and yet they are still there to be interpreted and and and, and understood. Um, I've been fortunate that the um, the great collection of, of um, archaeological records and records of standing buildings called the Historic Environment Record is now largely um, digitised and online and it is searchable. Uh, and you, you can go to any locality in the country and uh, pretty much and and discover what, what has been recently found and what still remains and is still standing in some form. Um, in in the neighbourhoods that you know best and, and and that really does allow us to understand how these places used to be at the heart of their communities and to some extent are still there just standing rather anom- anonymously at the heart of their communities
0: haven't they just found some enormous tannery is it fountains uh yes least, it is at, at fountains
1: i think Was yes um that that's right People often say to me as, as a medieval historian, surely there, there can't be much for you to do because we already know everything. The truth about medieval history <laughs> research is that we're still making discoveries. Um, uh, that's what for me makes it such an exciting field um, that there mm, is so absolutely. much more to uh, to learn to uncover. In, the, in um, the city of Gloucester over the last few months, they've been uncovering um, the um, Carmelite friary, which is on the edge of the town as a new... Uh, shopping centre is being uh being laid out. And and there are many city centres where, where that's true. Um mm-hmm. I like to annoy um people who, who are um fans of Richard the Third to say that for... Well I was
0: gonna say Richard III, yeah, <laughs> the Third. Yeah, for, for me
1: on. for me Richard the Third is only the the second most important discovery in that car park. Because the first <laughs> discovery in that car park of, of greatest importance surely is the remains of the Friary there where he was buried. That, for me, is, is the most exciting um, uh, uh, insight um, into, in, into Leicester uh, at the end of the Middle Ages. Um, and, and again, it's a reminder that right in the heart of our cities up and down the country are these monastic remains. A reminder that urban life, city centre life was defined by monasteries right down into the reign of Henry VIII.
0: Yeah, it's a lovely... And very exciting thought, isn't it, that there's all this undiscovered history just underneath our feet, <laughs> at our feet. Yes, literally. yes,
1: absolutely. I think the the other point to, to make is that it's also true, surprisingly true, of the written sources. Um, while I was working on the book, um, an account, uh, an inventory made at um, the Abbey of Evesham in, in Worcester actually came up for sale uh, at an auction house. Um, and... There are so many medieval and 16th century records still in private hands, still to be be found. I spend um, uh, time, particularly when I'm in a dull meeting, um, looking at um, uh, auction sites, um, including eBay, where you will find 14th, 15th, 16th century manuscripts popping up, um, which have never been studied. Uh,
0: And and did you buy it? I I
1: didn't know. Unfortunately, the... the, um, the means of a of a humble historian don 't extend that far, but okay, i 'm glad so, so was to say it say very was, expensive. It was bought by a museum um, which right. which is is very good news but um what 's exciting is when you see them on 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 an auction site is that these days of course they are um, available as a digital photograph, so you can snatch uh, a a shot of them um, and then work from them and uh, again it 's a reminder that the the evidence base is expanding constantly.
0: Yeah, there's a lot more there to be discovered. Um, the amount of research you must have done is is, is just mind-blowing. So impressive. So I think now we, we should get to your chosen year. So can you please tell us, James, if you could travel back in time to a specific calendar year, which one would it be?
1: I think it has to be 1540.
0: right. And can you give us a brief outline of the situation in 1540? I know we're at the end of the period of dissolution. I think that's the year that the very last monasteries were closed down. Um, so, can you just give us a, a set the scene for us briefly so we know um, what's going on?
1: Yes, of course. So, in 1540, uh, we are really reaching the. Um, climax, perhaps, of Henry VIII's Reformation. Um, He'd made himself head of the church six years before. Uh, So England is now uh, moving into uh, almost a a decade from from breaking with uh, the Roman church and the papacy. Uh, And this far into Henry's Reformation, Henry's own attitude is shifting. And It's shifting so much so visibly that um, contemporaries are beginning to comment uh, about what the direction of this this reformation perhaps really is going to to be. Uh, 1540 is a momentous year, an extraordinary year for Henry himself. It's the year of two marriages for Henry. Henry marries Anne of Cleves at the beginning of the year in January. Um, but then that marriage is annulled by July. And at the end of that month, Henry marries Catherine Howard. Uh, no other year in his life, in his reign, is, is therefore quite like it. It's a momentous year because the uh, chief minister, councillor, the vicegerent, that is, in effect, deputy monarch, uh, Thomas Cromwell... Uh, finally, falls. Um, what to many of those around Henry must have imagined or begun to imagine was impossible did happen, and Cromwell was toppled um, and he is executed on the same day that Henry marries Catherine Howard. Uh, more is shifting on a wider scale in 1540. The opportunity that Henry has been looking for for much of the past decade to make his presence felt on the European scene um, and to prosecute war seems to be opening up in the second half of the year. Uh, The um, alliance between the empire and the Kingdom of France seems to be uh, breaking and Henry sees an opportunity to align himself with the emperor and to um, uh, make war with France which he he does eventually not in 1540 but he's clearly beginning to prepare his subjects in 1540 would have seen visible signs of that because there's a lot of work going on up and down the coast of England as new fortifications are being completed and the and,
0: uh, oh, sorry are they being paid for by money from the dissolution of the monasteries
1: they are and and perhaps more visibly than how the labourers are being paid, is that they are being built out of the dressed stone of hmm. the monasteries themselves. So stone from the uh, the monastery uh, on the Isle of Wight at, at Core is going to uh, build these fortifications. So from really the um, Essex coast all the way round and down the south coast, You've got blocks of stone being shipped out to these uh, fortifications from monasteries. And actually, the the first calculation of Henry's um, Court of Augmentations is not about actually how much cash can be uh, raised from the monasteries, but actually how much building material can be recycled. And much of this recycling is... Uh, being channeled into what we would, I suppose, today call a kind of rearmament program. This is this is um, preparation for war uh, on a large scale. That's
0: so symbolic that literally the the, the stone is taken from the monasteries and amazing. Um, and we should just quickly say that, of course, the Court of Augmentations was the court that was set up by Richard Rich in order to deal with. The, the funds and the materials from the dissolution of the monasteries. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. So the, the court is set up um, at the time of the first statute to uh, close smaller monasteries um, in order to administer the process.
0: Wonderful. Well, I think we should, um, we should move to your first scene now, please. Um, so can you tell us where we're going? I, I believe it's a few days before Easter in March of 1540.
1: Yes. So in 1540, as we open the year, only a handful of monasteries remain open. Those monasteries are largely expecting at the beginning of the year to be able to continue because the policy of the crown throughout these uh, past months has not been precisely clear it has encouraged the view that a number of the most prestigious wealthiest and and perhaps best run monasteries might survive in Henry's England and Henry's own attitude had been at at best unclear, at times really quite contradictory. Um, and I think for much of the previous years, much of the 1530s, Henry's uh, view is that if if certain monasteries can be integrated into his his new English church, into his uh, new idea of a Tudor state, then he's prepared to accommodate them. And so that's the outlook of the the handful of monasteries that um, remain the beginning of 1540, um, and at the heart, if you like, of the, of the traditional English church at Canterbury, this seems to be the attitude of the monks there. And my first scene uh, would take us to Canterbury just before Easter, over those first three months of the year at Canterbury, the prior of the monastery, and this is the monastery that services Canterbury Cathedral, so Canterbury C- Cathedral uh, at this stage is, is a cathedral church, but staffed by a community of monks, headed by a prior. And they begin the year clearly expecting that they will be one of these monasteries that is absorbed into the new English church of of Henry VIII, um, but not closed down. The prior is clearly so confident of this that he begins the year expecting... um, it to be quite a typical year he he does what um heads of monasteries had always done um through henry's reign and he sends the king a new year gift he sends him 20 pounds in gold um uh, uh in mid january um as as a, as a new year gift and as as so often they had done before it's clear that he has some inkling in late february That there is now a discussion as to whether or not this cathedral monastery is going to be turned into a cathedral chapter. So the clergy are going to be told they can't be monks anymore, but there's still no certainty. And then we arrive in March, and just days before Easter, and we don't know precisely when, but then the commissioners of the king arrive to shut the monastery down. This is the Monastery in the premier church uh, within the English kingdom at Canterbury, and um, now they are shut down. We know that the prior, who is a man who would have been thought of as pretty elderly he 's over sixty at this point, he and fifty five monks uh, hand over their monastery at the heart of the English church at Canterbury to Uh, to the crown. We know a little bit about the men um, who were monks there. They seem to be mostly local men, men of Kent from the the names that they have. They are pensioned off. The prior receives a pension of £80, which is a very, very substantial sum. So that would be £80 a year that he's paid uh, as a pension. There were monasteries in Henry's England that were worth less as a whole. So when you
0: say pensioned off, I mean, did they leave or did they... Because I know that some monks became normal clergy. So who was going to be do, providing the services to this enormous cathedral if they weren't there?
1: This is why this is such an interesting scene, because this group of 55 men, including the prior, somebody called Thomas Goldwell, they're left in a curious limbo because, in fact, enacting of the new secular, that is not monastic, Cathedral of Canterbury doesn't happen for another year. Mm-hmm. It's not until April 1541 that uh, Canterbury Cathedral is given a new chapter of canons. And then it's still not uh, for uh, another eight months or so that the new canons of this new newly constituted cathedral at Canterbury are actually installed uh, as canons of the cathedral. So we don't know very much about how Canterbury is, is served in this time. So this moment just before Easter 1540 is the beginning of a really strange limbo or hiatus in the history of Canterbury as a cathedral. Uh, but also, of course, in the in the personal history of these men, whose careers had been spent uh, serving the cathedral as monks, and who now are put into a kind of suspended animation.
0: And doesn't that show that there was no plan for this happening? I mean, it's it does you do get the impression, don't you, that it Henry VIII is literally making his making up his mind, changing his mind. They're sort of making it up as they go along.
1: Yes, th- th- absolutely. This this is my 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 view that so much of the dissolution process is is a classic case of policy on the hoof, um, and and literally on the hoof as commissioners are sent out with their their writ empowering them to do something, but but so often those commissioners are are empowered but not fully instructed yeah. as to exactly how the thing should be played out on the ground. And um, it's clear we, we get a... Um, there is one surviving letter from, from the prior later in the year of 1540. Well, he's still asking for confirmation as to what actually is going to happen. Is he really going to get this pension? Yeah, yeah. Um, we have to imagine that probably, given that the Easter festival is bearing down on them in this last week of March uh 1540 that even after they've gone through the formalities of dissolving themselves as a corporate body they probably go back exactly to where they were so that the easter festivities can take place it's unthinkable that canterbury would have not celebrated easter no. that year um and and so often we find this that that um up and down the country. Monks monks are not literally shown the door on the day of the dissolution. Um, the last of the abbeys to be dissolved uh, was um, Waltham Abbey in Essex. And we know there that after actually signing their surrender to the crown, what the, the, the canons of that abbey did was, was simply to go back to their chambers and, and for the time being carry on. There's some suggestion um. Which is a, a an interesting um, insight into the way governments work. I think there's some suggestion that maybe back in Westminster, there's no great will to do anything until after the Easter holiday.
0: Mm. Well, Easter was the most important ceremony, wasn't it? it was mo- most important. Yes.
1: So um, we we know governments, local authorities, and so on. They sometimes um, you know like to go slow at moments when um, there's going to be a lot of leave happening. Um, yeah, and you yeah. get that sense that that these um, these monks at Canterbury, initially at least, are left in limbo simply because everybody knows a big holiday is coming up, and there's no great will to do anything very decisive until that's over. Mm.
0: But also this feeling that it, it all kind of snowballed out of control. No one was really, you know, driving the carriage, as it were. It was um...
1: no, no. I think I think that's quite right. Um, just as Thomas Cromwell must have begun the year assuming that he would see it out Mm. um, in his position. And just as um, Anne of Cleves, I think, must have begun uh, her marriage in January to Henry, thinking that she would still be his consort at the end of the year. I think similarly, prior, Thomas of Canterbury and his 54 colleagues um, had every reason to think at the beginning of the year that um, although they were aware that there was a great deal of churn in the mind of the king and in his government about what role monasteries should play, that that churn had not yet resulted in an absolutely definitive plan. And that conviction that they must have had at the beginning of the year would not really have shifted very much, even in that last week of March, yeah. 1540. Well, they, were,
0: they were planning on ordering a new set of habits, weren't they? I like that they
1: detail. were. They were. They were ready to um, uh, refresh their, their <laughs> habits for the year. And um, uh, the sort of thing that um, is an indication that they're, they're not getting ready to shut up shop. By no, means. not at all. And we, we see that again in many other Uh, monasteries up and down the country.
0: We're going to talk about habits a bit later but I I think we should um, move on to your second scene now um, which is a different um, religious institution in London in Clerkenwell and it's the 7th of May. So can you tell us um, what's happening?
1: Yes so we now move forward beyond Easter 1540 to early spring to the 7th of May and to the very last closure of a network of religious houses in Henry VIII's England. This is the last moment, really, of uh, the dissolution in mainland England. The network of houses of the Knights Hospitaller, which were a religious order like Benedictines and Franciscans and Cistercians, uh, but a military order. They were an order committed to the defence of Christendom and they had houses across the country and they held much property, much like any other monastery uh, or religious order. They are finally suppressed in May 1540. And they have the distinction of being the only part of all of the different orders and congregations of monastic England and Wales that are actually entirely shut down by Act of Parliament. So, in fact, most of the other monasteries are shut down as a result of a, in effect, a voluntary decision on the part of those who are um, members of the monastery um, under immense pressure from the Crown. But the Hospitaller network is actually shut down by Act of Parliament, as what has become clearly after Easter 1540, it is seen to be a, a, a sort of tidying up process. There is clearly a recognition by the beginning of May 1540 that now, even if it's as much by accident as by design, there are no longer monastic institutions in the country. And the, the continuing survival of this network of the Knights Hospitaller is an anomaly. But even here, there was no clear indication until the very last moment that this was going to happen. So just as the country comes out of the Easter celebrations in April 1540, that the network of the Knights Hospitallers are still receiving grants of property um, from the Crown. So they're still very much a part of of the Crown and government's thinking very, very late on, within a month of them being shut down. But what it looks to be the case is that there is by, by May 1540 a recognition that this is the only remaining outlier of what used to be this extraordinarily rich and diverse network of, of monastic foundations, and the hospitals are shut down. The news is brought to the head of this order of hospitalers, a man called William Weston, at the house that was regarded as the headquarters of the order, um, at Clarkenwell the Priory of St John of Jerusalem at Clerkenwell. Clerkenwell, to put it in into its environment context, um, just at the northern edge uh, outside the city of London. But the prior uh, himself, so he's the head of the whole of the order, he receives the news that Parliament have um, finally shut the order down on the 7th of May. And it's such a shock that we're told... That he immediately suffers a seizure and he's dead by the end of the day, the prior himself is a remarkable figure he's a man already in his early seventies and he'd had like a lot of knights hospitaller, he'd had a very colourful military career, and he had the distinction and, and he was celebrated in in London right down to to the day of his death for this he had the distinction of one of being one of the only Englishmen to have survived the siege of the island of Rhodes in 1522. Uh, Rhodes had been one of the European headquarters of this order of Hospitallers Um, and Rhodes was attacked by the Ottoman Turks Mm. in 1522 and the attack was led by no lesser figure than Suleiman the Magnificent Um, uh, so this 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 is a legendary moment in in European history, a clash between East and West. And William Weston, prior of the Knights Hospitaller, was there throughout the siege, and he walked out, unlike most of his colleagues. So he's a remarkable veteran from the front line. I find him a very evocative figure because there he is. We we got beyond Easter, fifteen forty. Even the monks of Canterbury at the heart of the English church have now gone, albeit uh, their monastery is gone, they're standing in limbo at Canterbury waiting to know what happens next. But here is this great survivor. He survived Suleiman the Magnificent and at the beginning of May, 1540, he's still surviving, holding on. He is the last living monastic relic, if you like, of of medieval England and and his order. uh, Likewise, and... (laughs) It, it seems a, a, a cruel irony. He, he couldn't be killed by Suleiman's formidable Ottoman Turks, but he's killed by the news from Parliament that, um, that this great medieval tradition that we trace all the way back to the Crusades uh, is, is finally over. What I also like, like about him is that we can also look him in the face. So many of these people of monastic England, we, we know them as names in documents, as signatures at the end of letters, but with William Weston, prior of the hospital, as we can look him in the face, or at least a face of a kind, because his his great tomb effigy, which he'd clearly planned during his lifetime, does survive. Um, and he was buried, as was the style of the time, with a cadaver tomb e- effigy. That is a an effigy of the body already decomposing um, as a skeletal frame with the the flesh beginning to hang off the body. And that part of his original, very grand tomb effigy does survive in uh, what is now the Church of St. James at Clerkenwell. Um, It's the most extraordinary piece of of sculpture, a colourful knight, uh, exactly the kind of heroic battlefield veteran that, of course, Henry VIII always fantasised himself about being and and never never quite managed.
0: Well, I hope I hope we're going to have a picture of of him on the website, so
1: great, listeners great, can
0: go and have a look. But surely a, the death of a man like that, I, I, I imagine, I I wonder whether you were able to find out what kind of re- a reaction the death of someone like that would have provoked in Clarkenwell at the time. I mean, presumably he was a huge local figure, and you know people would have everyone would have known him. And it's such a poignant way to die. Do, do, do you think that that would have sparked a reaction?
1: Well, I think, I think the best evidence that it sparks a reaction is that his tomb, very grand, clearly a, a demonstration almost of his monastic status with this, this extraordinary cadaver, that tomb is completed. Mm. And, and it is preserved for several generations after, after his death. That says to me that the immediate neighbourhood did venerate, value... His, his memory. A good many uh, of the monastic buildings in and around the City of London are altered, adapted in the, the decades that follow. But that tomb uh, does survive. Um, and, and as I've said, this central portion of it still survives to this day. And I think that is a testament to the the, the standing that he has. I think people have a complex relationship with monastic England. But above all, they recognise that it is part of the, the fabric of their own local identity. Um, and, well, and there and- must
0: have been so many different points of view. I mean, I wonder sometimes, you know, what it would have been like living in a rural village during the 16th century. And, you know, you would have had neighbours who were convinced by the Reformation and were devout Protestants, but equally, you would have known people who were, had remained true to the um, Catholic Church. And, I think that's one of the most compelling things about this whole period is is just trying to imagine what that would have been like. This enormous, unthinkable change. And I don't just mean the dissolution of the monasteries, but you know, the entire Reformation must have been so seismic. The
1: the irony is that perhaps the great the great enemy that a lot of people actually come together over, I think, is is this central government, this this royal yeah. government. Cromwell. Um, um, Yes, Cromwell personally, but also a sense that they recognise that generation after generation has invested in these buildings and, and in their people and in the activities that they, um, they supported. And they are um, very reluctant to see that investment uh, be, be creamed off by an yeah. external authority, to be creamed off by the Crown. It, it's that other fault line that we see in in recent british politics which is more about the 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 them and us Um, the westminster bubble is going away going its own way and a way that the great majority of the country feel pretty equivocal about Mm. and i think that's possibly the divide that that is quite similar to the dissolution also that perception that that if the government has an agenda, they've not done a very good job of explaining it to the rest of us. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's something that a lot of us could, could identify with.
0: Hello, it's Artemis. For some time, we've been working with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd, and we've been telling you about his fascinating colorization work. Well, recently, Jordan has launched his new project – it's a website called Unseen Histories which showcases a broad range of fascinating historical material. You can read feature-length pieces there about female fashion in the Victorian era or beautifully illustrated extracts from books like Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. For those of you who have enjoyed Jordan's colorization work in the past there's a full range of remastered photographs from the archives of the Library of Congress. It's history for our times. Do have a look for yourself at unseenhistories.com so let's move on to your third scene, uh, which is a Newgate prison in London. And we're in what you call the dog days of summer. We're going to be meeting a man called Thomas Epson.
1: We are. So we're now into August 1540. So now there is no doubt that there is no longer any live living monastic institution in Henry VIII's England. Um, the Hospitallers have been swept away. Poor William Weston is dead. And then suddenly, it's almost as if there is a curious coda played out. Um, we have to assume outside Newgate Jail in the city of London. So, um, as with our, our second scene, we're still um, uh, within uh, the capital. Now we're actually inside. Uh, the city walls, so Newgate Jail, to to orient ourselves, is is just north of St Paul's Cathedral, um, in the uh, sort of n- northwestern corner of the city of London. Um, uh, it's a already in the early sixteenth century. It's a very large um, and rather rambling complex of buildings. Holds about three hundred prisoners, and one of those prisoners in early August fifteen forty is brought outside. Um, and made to be the subject of a strange bit of pretty brutal theatre. And that, according to the chronicler Edward Hall, is a man called Thomas Epsom. And Thomas was a monk of Westminster Abbey. He's a Benedictine monk of Westminster Abbey. Now, Westminster Abbey had actually been shut down earlier in 1540, earlier than the monastery at Canterbury. Westminster had had finally shut as a monastery in January uh, 1540. Epsom, though, we think, had been in prison for months earlier than that. We don't know when he's taken out of Westminster and bundled into jail in Newgate, but he'd been there for a while. It's difficult to say why he was there exactly. Um, It wasn't... uh, something that would see you into jail just to be a monk, um, even in the beginning of 1540, it seems likely that he had um, spoken out against the king's headship of the church and he'd been plucked out of his community. Um, Westminster Abbey by beginning of 1540 had sort of middle 20s numbers of of monks in it, um, so it had shrunk in size a bit. Um, So if Epsom was among them, he'd been dragged out for presumably speaking his mind about the king's headship of the church. Um, And he's sent to Newgate where he's been languishing. Because for as many of the monks and friars that um, are executed by the Tudor regime, there are just as many that are just left languishing in jail. Um, for months on end.
0: And do we have any idea of the proportion, um, and roughly how many of them would have been killed and put in prison and how many would have been kind of roaming the countryside looking for alternative employment?
1: Oh, The, the, the vast majority are, are dispersed across the country, um, uh, either taking up positions as, as clergy um, or waiting to be licensed to take up positions as clergy. Almost as many die in prison as die on the scaffold right. um, and they die, they die neglected and, and to some extent even forgotten. Or again, the victims of a government that can't quite decide what to do with them. Yeah, can't um, deal with them. And, and Epsom is, is probably one of the last remaining in prison um, and certainly one that the government doesn't know what to do with. And so what they do in early August outside Newgate is, is a bizarre piece of theatre. They drag poor Epsom out of Newgate and according to Edward Hall, he's still wearing his monk's habit from Westminster and he's very publicly, very symbolically uh, stripped of his habit and Edward Hall tells us that this was to make a demonstration that this is the last clothed monk in England and he's stripped of his habit and in effect, of course, the habit becomes the whole fabric of mm. the medieval tradition of monasteries in England. And that fabric is torn and muddied and trampled and it's gone. Um, and it's clear that um, this is a, a regime that perhaps has only just remembered that Epsom is still there and he becomes useful. Be- he becomes useful as a way of demonstrating in a year all the way down to at least the early summer, when it's still not been entirely clear is monasticism over? Is it not over? Yeah, and and the declothing of poor old Thomas Epsom, I think, is a very deliberate effort to disabuse the public of any question that. Perhaps in some way, monastic England lives on. It clearly won't after he loses his habit.
0: So presumably this is carried out in front of a large crowd of people. So they've they've sort of put the word about that something's going to happen. And Yes,
1: yes. And, and Henry's Reformation is, is marked by these moments of public theatre. This is by no means the first. Uh, the Abbot of Glastonbury is executed again for appearing to challenge the king's headship of the church and perhaps to um, withhold uh, both cash and other treasures when the king's commissioners come to Glastonbury. And his death isn't another routine death at the scaffold, um, but uh, produced almost like a a Shaftesbury Avenue impresario in, in the extraordinary way that it's done. He is executed uh, with two others either side of him um, who are accused very precisely of theft he's taken to the hill the tour outside the town of glastonbury um, where he is executed by being um uh, he's actually inverted um to be to be executed um he has to make a long and arduous journey out of town and up the hill um with his executioners to his death. Um, there, there is extraordinarily direct uh, imagery there channelling Christ's own crucifixion. This, this is an extraordinary piece of theatre. So this is a regime that takes every opportunity for um, these moments of, of public symbolism. Um, and what's curious, I think, is the way that there is a real clarity in these moments of theatre precisely the kind of clarity that is lacking much of the rest of the time.
0: Yeah, it's weird. They seem to f- suddenly know what they're doing when it comes to Indeed. the So, acts.
1: And that's why I think this scene in 1540 is so, so telling, because I think this is a government... It's a bit like um, a government today that might put out a public statement after weeks and months of great uncertainty where everyone has said, this government doesn't really know what it's doing and what we're being told... Um, so they wheel out a moment of clarity in order to try and recover the the news agenda, as it were. And I do think that the um, the declothing of Thomas Epsom is, is is one of those right down to August. So so across uh, almost eight months of the year, there has been still been monasteries in England. Um, clearly, the hospital is expected that they might have survived and so on. But now. They've remembered they've got this prisoner in Newgate and they can make an example of him. Sadly, we don't know what happens to Thomas, but um, it just seems to me very striking. And Edward Hall, the chronicler, who is is then putting his chronicle together later in the 1540s, um, he's very well placed to to know what was still reverberating in the public conversation. And so I think we have every reason to think this is... This is a very real scene that was still remembered. And he, Edward Hall, tells us this, this really is the last sighting of, of a monk uh, in, in Henry's England, in, in, in Tudor England. It really is the last living moment of that long medieval tradition of monasticism.
0: Mm. And, and that leads us perfectly on to my last question which is um, what your memento would be that you would like to bring back with you to the present from 1540?
1: I think it has to be Epsom's habit because it does seem to me that, uh, having followed the story of these more than 800 monasteries through their last generations and then down to their their final months and weeks, that... I'd want to hold on to something that really connects me to the very moment of the end and that's not actually the the turning of Canterbury Cathedral from a monastery into a secular chapter it's not even uh, William Weston's uh, death at the shock of the news that his tradition of monasticism had come to an end but it has to be that moment with Epsom and I'm 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 very drawn to this very sorry figure, who's who's languished in Newgate Jail for goodness knows how many months, um, and and yes, it's the last sighting of, of of a man connected. We must assume with with one of the greatest medieval monasteries in in England, Westminster Abbey. Um, so it it connects us to so much of that medieval tradition mm. uh, of monasticism. I th- I'd have to say also, um, there's there's a nerdy answer to this too, which is. Um, I'd like to know more about medieval monks' habits. Um, And in Thomas Epsom's Habit, I think I might discover it more. Um, Because one of the criticisms running down the Middle Ages, Chaucer, John Skelton in the Tudor period, uh, and so on, is that um, monks have a very comfortable life. And one of the ways we know they have a very comfortable life is that they always break the rules over just how warm and luxurious their clothing yeah. is. So uh, we know that they had a liking for um, fur lining in their hoods, for example. So although it's a bit nerdy, um, I'd like to have Epsom's habit, because I'd like to look at the hood. Was it lined with fur, <laughs> rabbit fur maybe? Was it, did it have maybe a little um, border of, of silk? Um, uh it, it probably was pretty grubby. Um, well I was gonna say
0: in... you might need to wash it before you um yes, do yeah, any but, investigating on it.
1: But I I think I'd definitely get an article out of, of you know New Light on Monk's habits.
0: Definitely, definitely. I think that's a fantastic choice. Um thank you so much uh for coming on today. I've really enjoyed our conversation, James. Thank you.
1: No problem at all, I've really enjoyed it too.
0: That was me, Violet Muller, talking to Professor James Clark the other day. His new book The Dissolution of the Monasteries is available now in all good bookshops published by Yale University Press. Please have a look at his episode page on tttpodcast.com. You can find some great images there including one of the cadaver effigy of William Weston which is truly spooky. You'll also find our full archive of episodes including the one I did with Richard Ovenden about the dissolution of Glastonbury Abbey earlier on this summer. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Goodbye.